So I'm here with uh, Dr. Rithika Goal. Um, she is a family doctor and activist in Toronto. Um, Rithika, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Justin. So people really, I think, need to talk to a doctor. <laughs> I'm like, I just tell me, tell me what, tell me what the fir- the past few weeks has looked like for you, like as a as a family doc uh, working with marginalized. Um, communities in particular and like where you're working and what it's looking like yeah it's it's been a lot as as I think it has for everybody really it's been a a difficult time Um, for me working in a clinic setting as well as a shelter drop-in setting I've been really concerned I've spent a lot of time really worrying about people that have in general, at baseline, been forgotten by our society, and how that crisis that they were already living in day to day is brought into even sharper relief in the context of a global pandemic. So particularly, I've been hearing stories uh, from people all week about how if they're living in a shelter, there's no way that they can follow all these guidelines that people are being told. There's no way for them to keep themselves safe Uh, How can they socially distance? How can they self-isolate? I've been hearing about people wondering how they're going to eat uh, with food banks being closed, with drop-in meal programs being closed. Uh, I've had lots of people talk about their rent, being concerned uh, about being able to use safely, Um, not sure whether they should be going in to use the supervised consumption services and overdose prevention sites to avoid congregating with people, but then putting themselves at risk for overdose. Um, You know, I've been thinking a lot about people who are undocumented, such as uh, construction workers who are essentially just continuing on as if nothing's happening, um, uninsured folks and their ability to access the healthcare services they need. So, you know, so many different people in our society that the society was never really set up for. It wasn't set up to support them. And those cracks that have always been there just you know, turn into chasms when you've got a global pandemic on your hands. You have talked about this for a long time. Like, I guess it's part of the literature in medicine is the, I guess they call it like the social determinants of health or like the whole idea that if people aren't housed, if we don't have full employment even, and if we don't have comprehensive idea of what people need to be healthy, then what a healthcare system can do is really limited. Absolutely. We, the literature is very clear, and we know this as people that are connected to community, that what matters for your health is really having a good income, having a living wage, having shelter, having food, having access to health care. Um, it, 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 the healthcare system itself is important, um, but it actually isn't even the most important thing that determines somebody's health income is actually the number one thing that determines someone's health. And so if we, as health providers, as people working in health, if we truly believe in doing what's most important for the health of our society, we actually need to be talking about all of those things um, because that's actually what keeps our society healthy. What is the, what's the situation in terms of things like protective equipment and like your your ability to to and like other frontline workers like nurses and and everybody that works at the hospital like to to protect yourselves are there are there like things that are coming that you guys know about in terms of shortages or other issues that are just uh, like that are about to hit us that 
that you're kind of worried about or um, yeah, we're, we're yeah, like, already operating in an unprecedented manner um personal protective equipment such as masks and gloves um gowns these are things that are becoming hot commodities as they're in short supply particularly as we have to plan for situation the situation that's definitely going to get worse before it gets better that's how it's happened in China and South Korea and Italy. Um, we, we don't want to become uh, those places um, in terms of what happens in Canada. We, we also want, of course, want to be in solidarity with them and learn from them, understand what uh, different countries have done that's helped maintain um, and prevent the spread. But yeah, having access to appropriate equipment is a real challenge, particularly when you're when you're projecting out to what's likely to come. So there have been efforts to make sure that any uh, protective equipment that's in, for example, dentist's offices or other places is being brought to the hospital system. Um, there have been efforts to uh, just kind of um, use the protective equipment in a way that we wouldn't in the past, like not necessarily changing after every single patient encounter and just holding yeah. on to your mask, just recognizing that at least having the mask, um, even if if used is better than no mask at all. So it's really unprecedented time. And the thing that's most challenging, of course, is the uncertainty of what is to come. We are, I think, in the eye before the storm. And so yeah. it's really important that we're 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 staying vigilant and we're preparing for the worst because things are going to get worse. Are you are you going to be like drafted into some other role or are you is the idea that you're just going to be like where you are for the for the duration of this pandemic like working as a family doctor or is it like no, we're gonna we're gonna move you around to other sites or like. Yeah, I think in in a way everything is on the table because things are so unprecedented. Um, family doctors are quite unique in that we have a broad range of skills and we have broad training. So I I think it's totally possible um, that family doctors would be called into to work in the emergency room. A lot of the COVID assessment centers uh, are being are being run by family physicians because we do outpatient care. So I think there's there's lots of ways in which we um, may be working already and will likely start working in in new and different unprecedented manners because this is a situation that we've never faced before. Have you administered test like have you been testing people? Do you is there testing capacity coming um, so line at all it's changed from time to time so so initially before we had these covid assessment centers set up um uh, we were our, our facility was testing folks um that was variable some primary care teams were doing that and others were not um, so at this point, everybody is being tested through the COVID assessment centers, but there's also been calls, for example, for uh, folks in shelter systems to perhaps have community mobile testing for people who have negative experiences with the healthcare system, for people who would have difficulty waiting in long lines or who uh, may not you know, get the appropriate trauma-informed care at the assessment centers. There have been lots of folks advocating for having different ways of thinking around how to do the testing. Right now, as far as I know, though, it's mostly centralized through the COVID assessment centers. Is that ramping up at all? Like, are we are we going to get to a Korea level of, is that the goal? Like, are, are we headed for being able to test like almost everybody so that we can be more selective about web, going out? Eventually, like, I think that that that's what they managed to do in Korea, right? Like, 
Yeah, so I think the challenge is that things are changing so fast. Um, I I believe even the guidelines in the past week have changed so many times in terms of who's going Mm -hmm. to be tested. So currently in Ontario, or or at least in Toronto, we are testing people who are primarily people who are high risk of transmission. That's the priority for who Mm -hmm. to test. So that would be people with symptoms that are at high risk to transmit because they live in the shelter, because they're live in another group setting, whether a group home, a boarding home, a long-term care facility, or someone who's a healthcare worker or a frontline worker, say in the shelter system or in another setting uh, where there's high risk of transmission, um, or someone who's been identified by by Toronto Public Health uh, that needs to be tested. So we're really, I, I would say the approach being taken, at least in Toronto right now, is to really prioritize um, who gets tested, because we're operating on knowledge of community spread. So in a way, it's more important to test to be able to to then direct resources in a particular way. And for, for people that don't meet that criteria, that have a home where, and, and are not sick enough to need to go into hospital, we're generally recommending that people stay home and self-isolate for 14 days, which is usually the duration of the illness. Is Do you have a sense of like the impact of cuts on on the situation we're in and we're going to face and also like what, what we would be able to do with a better funded or like a fully funded system that, that wasn't perpetually in danger of being cut. Yeah. um, You know, I think Toronto particularly is in a unique situation because we went through SARS. So in a way we've, we've gone through, something similar, though not at this scale. So I think we we are actually fortunate that our public health officials, uh, including our medical officer of health, um, really, really know how to do this. So I think we've got excellent Mm -hmm. people in those positions who we should be listening to. Whether or not the system was actually um, set up to respond to such a crisis, I feel in a way this this type of thing has, has not been foreseen. Now, I'm not privy to the discussions around whether public health officials have in the past called for more supplies to be stocked, for example, of PPE, of, um, you know, having more ventilators in stock, etc. It's possible that those conversations happen. It wouldn't be it wouldn't surprise me at all to learn that um, public health might have recommended having more emergency preparedness than we have had. Um, the place, though, that I think really does stand out for me is the cuts and the the um, really underfunding of our whole social structure. So yeah. I think we wouldn't be in this situation if we had actual affordable housing for everybody. Uh, but currently, we have a shelter system that operates at close to 100% capacity. We have about seven to 10 year wait list for affordable housing in this city. I don't think we'd be in this, this, this uh, situation if we had proper living wage and decent work with benefits. People wouldn't be concerned about going into work sick because they don't have paid sick days. Um, if we had pre-existing universal health care that covered uninsured migrants, you know, proper social assistance rates, like those are all the things that to me really stand out as being um, what we what we could have had in advance to really be able to weather this storm and protect those who are most marginalized and probably most at risk for getting and transmitting the virus. A couple of days ago, you guys, um, you and and I think some members of the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty uh, made us a, a public statement, kind of outlining some emergency measures. Do you want to do you want to just talk about what you what you discussed there? 
Yeah, so Ontario Coalition Against Poverty, who has been, you know, fighting for decades um, for safe and dignified uh, systems for people living in poverty, um, called together a press conference. And really what, what what we demanded is Um, an appropriate response for people experiencing homelessness in the context of this crisis and also for people living in poverty, uh, people using drugs, etc. And so the calls were to ensure that we have enough shelter spaces um, so that people are actually able to socially distance, have drop-in spaces open that allow people to access the crucial services that they need during the day, one of the one of the um, you know catch twenty twos for people experiencing homelessness right now is that they're being told to socially distance, which they largely can't do. And then mo- many shelters have you leave during the day, and most people spend time in drop ins or libraries during the day, which are now all shut down. So they often you know are having difficulty finding places to go to the washroom or to be able to wash their hands during a pandemic. Um, So so we have a situation where people are in close quarters, they're high risk to contract the virus, transmit the virus, and then are sort of in the community with very, very low provisions for being able to maintain hand hygiene. Um, So so OCAP was calling for increased shelter spaces, increased drop in spaces, raising social assistance rates um, and ensuring access to harm reduction uh, services for people. I was uh, an advisor for a an amazing student, uh, Zoe Dodd. She just finished her master's a few months ago. You know, she's one of the first people to organize these overdose prevention sites. And she's been writing about the way that frontline workers are having to deal with, like the overdose crisis basically didn't go away just because we had a pandemic. And also, um, and also like in her thesis or in her major paper, she was also like, she kind of got into like the, the kind of moralizing and and um, yeah, like the moralizing towards poor people, towards uh, drug users, um, that kind of pervades uh, social attitudes, and that like like it's deeply harmful in the best of times, but it's really deadly in a pandemic. Are you seeing any plasticity? Like, are you seeing people being a little bit more open to arguments about like how we need to save lives at this moment? Yeah, we are. But I think the reason we are is because suddenly people's lives who have not mattered matter because they could endanger the health of the rest of the population. So, you know, suddenly mountains are moving. They're moving Mm -hmm. maybe slower than they could be, but, but there are moves happening. So, you know, in Ontario, we've seen the government announced that healthcare will be accessible to all people, regardless of immigration status, um, which came yeah. after a lot of uh, advocacy from groups like Oath for All and, of course, from, from affected communities that have been saying this for a long time. But in terms of people who use drugs and, and the moralizing, that, that goes for many communities. That, that goes for people who use drugs. It also goes for people who are incarcerated. It goes for precarious yeah. migrants. Yeah. It goes for people experiencing homelessness. You know, a lot of folks who in our society, there is there is kind of an uh, implication often that they have caused their situation, that they've made poor mm-hmm. choices. And so therefore, do we really, you know, need to be doing anything for them? Um, and when you're in a public health crisis, all of a sudden people want to help, not because they necessarily see the inherent value and dignity in people's lives, but rather because their own lives are at stake. This is a particularly powerful argument for prison abolition. Have you seen, have you had any more success 
like making these arguments than you than you otherwise would have? I, I can't say that I've specifically seen movement around um, what's happening for folks who are incarcerated. I know that the, mm. the Canadian Civil Liberties Association put out demands saying that we should really be looking at release, possibly releasing people, taking into account public safety, yeah. but possibly releasing people who can be safely released, um, really looking at limiting who gets incarcerated at this time, um, and then looking at how we incarcerate people because social distancing is not a real thing when you're in prison. And so, you know, to what extent have we just decided that this population is a group that we don't care about? I mean, it only takes one case of COVID-19 to get into the prison system. Uh, And that's terrifying what can happen. You know, people in prison deserve a dignified space. And yeah, I agree. I think, I think, this is this is a great argument. I can't say that I've seen movement, but it's possible that um, those conversations are happening. Uh, and you are you able to envision like the the end of this, or or like this kind of winding down? And and like, what do you think? Because uh, all I do is look at China and Korea at this point, because they're the only mm-hmm. people that have kind of approach the other side of it but like in our context where we are what do you think has to happen before we get on the other side because we're still like heading up the curve right like we're not we're not near the peak here yeah yeah i think if we we truly want to flatten the curve we have to enable people to be able to do that so we need to have shelter for people Uh, we need that shelter to be safe so that that has to be like hotels and motels at this point, right? Like there's no other, there's because uh, no, the t- tourist industry is basically dead. Yeah. The thing I, to do. Yeah. What do you think? I think there, there um, are likely conversations happening around some of that. Um, I don't know whether that, you know, on what scale that conversation is happening, but I think absolutely at least allowing people to be able to follow those recommendations. So whether that means um, more shelter spaces, um, bigger shelter spaces, um, you know, taking hotel, motel spaces, um, all of those things I think should be on the table. Everything should be on the table. So you have to have people be able to actually isolate safely. And then you also have to make sure that people feel they can, um, you know, stay home if they're sick. Uh, now, you know, a lot of industries, people are working from home, but that's not that's not something you can do if you're working, if you're one of the grocery store workers, if you're if you're working in retail and it's still operating, if you're a construction worker, the construction industry has huge numbers of undocumented workers. Um, a lot of it is cash. So, you know, the likelihood that people will feel safe and protected enough to actually disclose that they're having symptoms and stay home for 14 days in self-isolation, which is what we're widely recommending to the general population, you know, that's not a realistic scenario for people unless we provide them with actual workplace benefits and safety. So we need to provide decent work and a living wage and access to universal health care. There's so much that needs to be done to actually implement this directive from the province saying that everybody will have access um you have to you have to mitigate decades of people who are in precarious status situations being afraid to go and seek health care because they're worried about immigration authorities um you know so in in theory we've said no immigration enforcement in theory we've said access to health care but what does it mean to actually be an undocumented person that's afraid of 
um, going and being asked for identification? What does it mean to be a new permanent resident that's in the three-month waiting period who might not know anything about this announcement and might not know that they can now go and get their OHIP card? So it's incumbent on the government to to inform communities, to make the right changes, and then to inform communities so that everybody knows that they actually can access the care that they need, they can actually access paid sick days, they can actually socially distance and self-isolate and quarantine, whatever it is that needs to happen. Um, but I don't think... So as, an, so as an undocumented uh, worker, are you, you can, like, are you going to go, if you go to a clinic or a doctor, are you, can, do you not, like, does the clinic now not need your card or what happens? So the, the directive from the province has been that people should all be able to access health care regardless of OHIP status and immigration status. Whether right. every single clinic in Ontario knows that, I can guarantee you they do not. Um, and with so many decades of status quo being that people get asked for cash up front, people obviously at baseline, everybody is asked for an OHIP card. Um, because our policies and processes don't take into account that there are people that don't have an OHIP card and what it might mean for them, the fear it would create to even ask for this identification. Um, there, There is work happening right now for this information to be disseminated through the hospital system, at least. So we're we're hopeful. Um, and we so when you when you go to when you go into work, there'll be like a sign on the door or whatever that says, <laughs> don't ask for cards today. That's the hope um, that that message yeah. actually gets out there properly so that people are not turned away. So they're not asked for cash. I mean, we have a situation at baseline and we know of cases like this in the last few weeks, even where people were asked for hundreds of dollars at the emergency room that had respiratory symptoms. This is very recent. Oh. Exactly. Wow. And so that's before the, the, the announcement was made by the province. So all of this has to happen really rapidly if if people uh, in, you know, migrant communities continue to assume what they've what has been their lived reality for decades. You know, why would they not assume that they can't access health care? They've never been able to access health care in the way that the rest of us have. So it's really incumbent on us to ensure that that information gets out there that people know that they can access care um, and that people know they can access sick days, et cetera. So, you know, you have to do the work. It, it's not just about changing policies. It is about changing policies and we need that. And some of that is happening, which is great to see, but you also need to disseminate that information to community. So that, so the, the big announcements in the past few days by Trudeau and by Ford, um, they, there's still a lot of holes in terms of what they're, offering versus like what they're telling people to do it seems yeah i think you know it's one of these the devil is in the details types of things so mm -hmm. we've seen um the announcement from trudeau around being able to access benefits uh and saying that that's not only going to be for people that were eligible for ei which is great to see and i think just points out the huge holes in the fact that not everybody's eligible for ei so at baseline, if you're a precarious worker, if you don't have benefits, if you don't pay into EI or, you know, in some cases you pay into EI, but you can't actually access it, um, then why is that the system that we created at baseline? Why are we needing to create this workaround? Um, will those people even know that this is something they can access because they just assume that they don't have access to benefits because they never have Right. So what does it look like to implement something that's that's trying possibly, hopefully to to um, even temporarily fix a broken system, but 
for the people who have always known that they were not given value in the same way and that they were not, you know, considered deserving of these benefits, how will we get the message out to them that now we think they are because their health actually matters for our health, right? That's essentially what's happening. I, I, want, I, I did want to say, like, in terms of the pathology of the virus, uh, if that's even the right term, but, like, <laughs> how unique is this? Like, how different is this virus from things we've faced before? Like, is it's uniquely, it's very contagious, and then it also seems like a higher percentage of people who get it have to be hospitalized and get pneumonia and and need a ventilator is that like that's that's those are basically the properties of it that make it such a strain on the system right well and there's a couple more things so it's so it's far more contagious if you want to take the case of influenza which i think is the is the probably best comparator um it's it's much more um much more contagious than influenza it uh, has a much higher mortality rate and much higher rate of requiring uh, hospitalization and then critical care. Um, but also there's no vaccine and there's no cure. So there's no treatment. So for, for influenza, we have a vaccine and this is why we widely vaccinate people. And, and the, the efficacy of the vaccine varies from year to year because the strains vary from year to year. But this is why we widely vaccinate for influenza. And we also have an antiviral treatment for influenza. So if somebody does get really sick, you can give an antiviral treatment. That's not always successful and people do still die from influenza every year. But we're talking about something that's highly contagious. We don't quite yet know um, the level of transmission for people who are asymptomatic, but there's a very long incubation period. You can be 14 days before you even know that you're symptomatic um, and possibly be uh, transmitting during that time. And then if people do get sick, they, they can get extremely sick. And then there's no there's no actual antiviral treatment at this time. The last kind of thing, point that I think is worth making here is like, because of those properties, you know, like the, the fantasy of, of the rich and powerful is always that they can isolate themselves from these kinds of problems whether it's like building a bubble to live in because to get away from climate change or whatever or this but it does this does seem to be one of those cases that genuinely doesn't discriminate like you have billionaires getting it you have world leaders getting it and so it does seem like they're they're gonna need to look into the possibility of having more solidarity in society. Yeah, people are being arm twisted into solidarity. And I think to some extent, um, those of us that are working with communities and are organizing need to be pointing out um, where attention is needed, because, you know, a lot of it, they're, they're sort of intentional um, devaluing of certain folks' lives. But the, the other side effect of that is that um, people are not even necessarily thought about when we put out our general messaging. So the general messaging can go out and be just so completely not applicable to huge groups of people. Yeah. Like, like might... clueless, tone deaf. Yeah. Yeah. So that needs yeah. to actually be brought to the attention of people in power. And and I think, yes, you're right that it's, it's at a time where that can't be argued against. Now, the one other thing I will say around, you know, public health funding is that um, SARS actually is a coronavirus as well. And so there has been some um, writing around the fact that had we uh, proper funding and infrastructure for publicly funded science and research, uh, perhaps we actually would have de developed a vaccine 
um, from SARS or learned more about coronaviruses and been able to apply that or at least been much further ahead in terms of the science for developing a vaccine or an antiviral against this coronavirus. Um, but my understanding is that once SARS, the epidemic was was finished, you know, all of the research funding dried up. So it's another example of how our research funding priorities are determined and to what extent the importance of having publicly funded research that can that can actually do this work because you never know when it will actually be important. Um, so that's one way in which had we appropriately funded the the research post SARS for the lessons of SARS, we actually might be much further ahead right now with stemming this. If you think like 17 years, you know, 17 years mm-hmm. after SARS and there, there could have been a lot of progress in 17 years in, Absolutely. in a lot of different areas. But we spent that whole time uh, cutting, you know, cutting the system basically to the bone. Um, okay, Rithika, thank you so much. I, I don't want to, like I said, I don't, I've kept you long enough and uh, you've answered all my questions um, I think this is going to be helpful to, um, you know, any, any, anyone who's like an activist who's stuck at home, who, uh, you know, wants to understand like what, what it looks like um, on the, on the front lines of the medical system, which is where you are. Thank you.